Just like at the light, the lifeguards say, walk. You don't want to slip. All right. And I want to invite everyone else to take your Bible and go with us to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. And we're going to look at this. We're actually going to try to do an overview of this whole chapter. Um, it would take me about six minutes to read the whole chapter um, aloud. So we're going to kind of break it up in parts through the message. And um, what do, I do want to read the first um, 20 verses here as we begin. And we've been, as we've been going through the book of Acts, we are now full into uh, Paul's third missionary journey, and he spends the bulk of that time in the city of Ephesus. And so we, we've, the last couple messages, we've introduced this city as he leaves from uh, Corinth to, to there, and then that transition time when he kind of goes on the furlough, uh, fulfills that vow, having his head shaved, taking the, going to Jerusalem, then back to the church of Antioch, revisiting, strengthening the churches through Galatia, uh, that revitalization work that we emphasize was such an important thing and that we could be part of that part of the Great Commission work, that that's just as much a part of Great Commission kingdom advancement as any other elements. And, um, uh, and so we see him now settling back into Ephesus and teaching for a couple years. And so that's where we're picking up the story. So Acts chapter 19, and uh, I'll begin reading in verse 1. This is God's word. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard of the, there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with water of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about twelve men in all, and they entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him and reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those that had evil spirits, saying, I enjure you by, the, by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered of, all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, 
and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they continued to value, counted the value of them and found it became about 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us now as we look into the Bible. Lord, I thank you for this passage that guides us into what true revival looks like, what awakening looks like in a city. And Lord, we beg and plead for that same spirit and that power. Teach us about him. And Lord, I also pray that you would do a work of awakening amongst us. And Lord, I thank you for what you're going to do today. Would you please help us to sacrifice idols and come to Jesus through this time? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, revival is a a very um, topic that a lot of people are interested in. And rightly so. There's a lot of powerful stories, and there's a lot of rich heritage about awakenings and revivals. And just just to kind of, um, uh, for those of you that are a little technical, technically you would use the word awakening for when when a lot of people get saved in a short amount of time or in a span, and revival for uh, kind of like a, a, a Christians being woken up. Because you have to have vive before you can have revive. So if there's not spiritual life, there needs to be... Uh, awakening to a need in coming to Christ, but often we'll use the term revival and things like that. I, 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 I you know, we've mentioned this when we've had special meetings that we'll, we we don't want to say we're scheduling the Holy Spirit to come and bring revival. We, we might have special meetings, evangelistic meetings, a conference, or something like that. But the Holy Spirit brings revival in His time. We can't manipulate that. We can't conjure it up. We can't work means and emotions and make that happen. And so anyway, though, so I want to, we're going to talk about what it looks like when revival comes to a city uh, and what true revival looks like as we see here in Acts 19 uh, with the awakening and revival that happens in Ephesus. Um, and, but I do want to caution us as much as there's some just incredible stories of revivals in our in 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 history especially in our country and even in our region of the country um uh just some incredible stories of uh, that really uh, I would I would commend to you a book uh by Ian Murray uh called Revival and Revivalism um it can be a little boring if you're not into like uh history stuff particularly like um colonial era American history first uh, great awakening and really what he does a good job is uh, is showing the difference between biblical revivals and this thing that happened in the 19th century of conjuring up and manipulating people and new measures and introducing new ideas and what was a demonstrable thing of someone coming to Jesus or making a decision for Jesus that was manipulated uh, called revivalism and a lot of the things that we still have is even part of a lot of church practice today. Anyway, so Ian Murray, Revival and Revivalism, Revivalism, great book. Um, because there can be an unhealthy and unbiblical obsession with revival. And just, we need revival, you know, and it's like, okay, well, where's the substance to this? Let's just talk about that. And 
Um, you know why we're in Acts chapter 19 this week? Because we were finishing up Acts chapter 18 last week, okay? So I say all that because I'm not picking on anybody right now, okay? This is, this, this is one of the beautiful things about uh, when you just preach sequentially through a book of the Bible that the Holy Spirit works it out perfectly. So uh, I say all that, so I'm not bitter about anything going on. So for the last two or three years, there was a big event going on at the VA, at the amphitheater, and there's, you'll see signs around town about uh, revival being scheduled for this weekend. And, and so I'm not beating up on anybody. There's some brothers and sisters in Christ uh, part of this. And so I'm not like, you know, uh, beating up on the Pentecostals. Uh, but I do think it is timely that God would have us this because um, now things like this have been happening in this town since the 60s when the, the, um, uh, the, when the modern charismatic movement really was kind of gaining ground. And there's been things going on in our part of the country since the 60s, and they're going on even today. Um, and they're not all our, they're not our enemies, so to speak, but it is a, this is a family discussion amongst Christians, many of our, whom are believers, but I do want to warn you to have a biblical view of what revival is. Um, because there are many former members of this church that will be at these events uh, that are sucked into these things and these thoughts. Um, none of us are prayed. Uh, we have to, to always be guarded against uh, false doctrine and being saturated with sound doctrine and being committed to sound doctrine. And so... Um, this is a warning, but also just an encouragement. So last week we saw this transition when Paul is transitioning in this, between the second and third missionary journey, and we saw some lessons in there, particularly with his ministry team, with Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos, and some of the just some good story, good good lessons uh, as aside things. And he gets into Ephesus, and so we see this going on. So in Acts 19, we see a description of a mighty move of God. And with some principles and themes that we can see and discern what true revival in action looks like. And so I have four or maybe five points in the time that we have of what true revival is from Acts chapter 19. And so what the title is Revival at Ephesus. And there's a double meaning to that title because there is a revival of the true religion and the worship of God and an awakening in hearts to come to Christ, but there is also a revival of the worship of Artemis or Diana that you see uh, in Ephesus, I think. So there's two revivals going on here that we'd say. Um, And so revival impacts a culture. There's also a revival of this Artemis worship or Diana. Uh, those of you that are Wonder Woman fans, some of this stuff comes from this mythology and stuff like this. Uh, there's actually one of the old comics where uh, Diana fights Artemis. Uh, and um, anyway, so we'll make it relevant and bring DC Comics into this. And so that way it's not all ethereal theology and ancient world stuff. Um, anyway, so... Um, um, so the so true revival touches and revolutionizes the culture around us. And it's not just all good things, because when you poke a hornet's nest, someone gets stung, right? Um, there was a revival. Uh, this Irish evangelist uh, came over from Ireland. This is in, uh, in, in the middle part of Pennsylvania. There was a great revival that came out, and this W.P. Nicholson um, he, he mentioned that, he, of course, he's an Irish guy, so he says the, the devil's enough Irish to put up a good fight. He's got enough Irish in to put up a good fight, but he said this, if a revival is from heaven, it will raise hell. 
Uh, if a revival is from heaven, it will raise hell. You ever notice that when God does something, a big work in your life, there's always a lot of other things that happen at the same time. Um, and so uh, there, will co- there will be conflicts that come when God brings revival or awakening or God does something in a church, in a person, in a town. And so uh, a theme of Acts is the biblical preaching, the commitment that the church had to biblical preaching and biblical conversions. We saw that in Acts chapter 2. A church on the move is committed to biblical preaching that results in biblical conversions. And you're going to see that just play over and over again uh, on repeat here as Paul is in Ephesus. So the first thing that we see in here is that is this commitment to true conversion. That the, and, and, the, and you're going to see this theme in this passage as well, that the spiritual, um, the gospel, there's spiritual warfare going on and that the gospel, the true unadulterated gospel, will triumph over popular magic and idols. Um, and so there's a commitment that true revival is a commitment to true revival emphasizes genuine conversions. In the first uh, eight verses, you'll see that uh, Paul comes to Apollo, comes in and Apollos is in Corinth. And so Paul wasn't the first one to start laying the foundation for the work. We're all building on someone else's shoulders. Um, it, there's pr- not many places left in the world that no one's ever been with the gospel. We're all le- standing on giant shoulders, and that's an important thing. Apollos has been there, but Paul comes in and he meets some. The word is used as disciples, and this confuses many in this passage because the same word for disciples used uh, for followers of Jesus that would be Christians also for followers of something. Remember, Jesus, sometimes when we were going through the Gospel of John, would talk about how he had a lot of disciples come, and then when he, they came for the food, when he fed the multitude. But then when he talked about other things, hey, you've only come for the bread, this, you need other type of bread, it says that some of the disciples left. And they use that same word. So disciples can kind of, kind of be a loose term uh, of those are just learners or followers that are a, a, a part of the crowd. That there's always going to be an element of that, that there's a little bit of a mixed multitude. It's one of the important things of church membership, uh, that, you're, that you're wanting as much as possibly to say that there is a regenerate, saved church membership, and knowing it's way, kind of a sift of just those that are part of, well, I kind of like the music, and I kind of like hanging out, and, you know, Jason tells a good joke every year or two, and, you know, that type of thing. And um, so, so we have that going on, but, so he meets these fellows that are disciples, and he said, he, so he, there's a question, he, he has a dialogue back to them, and notice how Paul does this. Um, and so they, they, there he found some disciples, and he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit? So he asked them two questions. So he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And this is kind of a, uh, this is, he's opening the door, he's digging. This is one of those microscope type questions he has. And they say, no, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. And he said, and to what then were you baptized? And they say, in the John's baptism. And he says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance and telling the people to believe that one came after him, that is Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. So the question comes in, who are these disciples? Uh, these guys are not, uh, were not followers of Jesus. And neither were they real disciples, disciples of John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist had preached to thousands. And so there were those that had come before he was preaching repentance and Messiah's coming. And then after he had met with Jesus, he, he, he said, you know, that, behold the Lamb of God. So then he was, so, but there had been people that came and heard John before he met Jesus. And there were those that came after. So some of those that followed John knew about Jesus. Others were just looking for a Messiah. And they knew about repentance and things like this. But they hadn't totally come to Jesus. So they really weren't there. How many of you have remember the story of Rip Van Winkle? 
Okay, and there's this guy who's kind of stuck in the woods and he's hiding out, and he doesn't even realize that the American Revolution's taking place. And so, George, who? Continental Congress? Declaration of Independence? He's still being, there are these, those that are stuck in the mountains somewhere that are just still think they're loyal to the British crown, and there's been an American Revolution. And so, in a sense, these guys are kind of spiritual Rip Van Winkles. Okay, they they they've been there. They're Old Testament saints that are that that haven't heard about these things. They 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 were followers, but they hadn't been given. They were lacking full understanding of the gospel. Now, here's where this is important, because this is the go-to passage that a lot of people go to to try to say that there's two stages: that you get saved at one point, and at another point you get the Holy Spirit, you have a second blessing, a baptism of the Holy Spirit, or something like this, and they'll go straight to Acts chapter 19 and say, well, there's these disciples, and and Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Oh, we didn't know about that. Oh, I'm supposed to go give you a few thousand dollars and come have you bump me on the head. Yeah, that's what I'm supposed to do, and then I'll get the Holy Spirit, right? No. Two things. One, Acts is a transitional book, okay? So there are things that happen in Acts that only happen one time. Okay, um, there are things that are transitioning. Uh, so, we, so there are some things that are describing for us that we get principles from, from, from us that don't go on. There's other things that are important for us to actually kind of see what's going on. So there are those folks that are caught in the middle. And so here's where I want to where, where I want to park on this. That is very it's no, you can't really show that these people are believers. These these 12 men. But what Paul does note here. Note this and note this. Anyone listening to this that's into this. Okay. What Paul does not do. Oh, you didn't receive the Holy Spirit? Well, here are 14 steps to getting a blessing and getting the Holy Spirit. Oh, let's have a seminar on filling and indwelling and deeper life. Let's go to this. What does he teach on? Does he even teach on the Holy Spirit? He goes straight to Jesus. He preaches the gospel to them. He teaches them the gospel because the gospel is always the solution. Because when you get the gospel and you believe on Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit. So he teaches them about Jesus, not the Spirit. And then they respond, they're baptized, laying of hands, they receive the Holy Spirit, and they speak in tongues. Now, these tongues are languages spoken. And there are a few different passages, and Mark chapter 16 is when we first see tongues come up in the New, in the New Testament, and then we see it uh, three times in Acts. We see it in Acts chapter 2, when the Jewish believers at Pentecost come. We see that we, four times, actually. We saw that when they were preaching to the Samaritans with Philip, um, and they, that they spoke in tongues. We saw that with Peter, with the Gentiles. In fact, that was the proof that when Peter's going back to Jerusalem at the Jerusalem Council, well, how are these, are these Gentiles believers? Are they part of the church just like we are? And he says, yes, they received the Holy Spirit just like you did. And they spoke in tongues just like we did. And then we see that here with these Old Testament saints. Now, here's where I want you to get. Miracles are not the norm in the timeline of biblical history. Um, we are on Wednesday night doing a study on called Trusting God. And one of the things we talked about this past week was that God rules the world through providence, not only through miracles. Providence is the normal way he rules the world. Uh, miracles are an exception. So if you were to take the timeline of the Bible and put when miracles took place on it and put it in dots, you will find that those dots of when miracles take place 
all happen around a, something changing in a transitional time for proof. So you'll go, so, so Egypt, Israel in Egypt, hundreds of years, not seeing miracles, working every day, making bricks with little hay. And then God's bringing them in the, ex, the exodus out and there's plagues and sea opening and shoes not wearing out and manna from heaven. What's going on? There's a transition from Egypt into the promised land. Then you, you'll, you'll not see miracles for a long time. And then God's people are taken off in captivity. They're coming back. You'll see some miracles around the intertestamental period uh, with the Maccabeans and things like this. And then you start seeing a transition of when Messiah shows up, a lot of miracles taking place. Is there a transition taking place when Jesus comes to scene? Yes. And then Jesus ascends to heaven and the church is being established and the new covenant is set up and the, new, and the, and the church age is going out in this way. Is there a transition being on, going on? Yes. Should we expect to see a lot of miracles to confirm this? Yes. So we see a lot of that going on. But you know what we don't see? So you, here we're in Acts chapter 19. Haven't we got, what, ten more, eight, eight more chapters to Acts 28? You don't see uh, tongues after that. You don't see it much in the New Testament after that. Of the healings and stuff. I mean, there's a reason why James has to write about healings. Uh, about healings. James writes about healings, but then later on in the other books, like in First John, they're talking about those that are sick and they're not seeing those. So that transitional. Now, God still heals. The Holy Spirit's still involved. And I'm not saying that everything's done, and I'm not trying to say, you know, poo-poo on anybody that's ever experienced anything. I'm just saying that the norm is not that, and that there's something special going on in this transitional time. And so... Um, so of the times in Acts that you see tongues present, you see a transition of God bringing from every kindred, tribe, and nation people into the church. Remember, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the outline of the book of Acts, right? So Jerusalem, Jews being speaking in tongues, then they come to know Christ. In Judea and Samaria, we saw the Samaritans coming and having speaking in tongues later on. And in the uttermost parts of the earth, we see that here with these. And then there's these folks that are the Rip Van Winkles that didn't get caught, that, that were, didn't have the full knowledge here of the gospel. And they're brought in. So basically, it's a confirming for us that in the church of Jesus Christ, there are the Jews, there are Gentiles, there are those Old Testament saints that come, and we're all of one body, one church. And that's what I believe the tongues there is emphasizing. So, but the important thing for us here is that Paul is emphasizing and pressing in to make sure that their conversion is genuine. This is one of the reasons why we do membership and baptism interviews. If someone's going to be baptized, make sure they know. I mean, as much as we can, it's based upon their profession, but lean in. Do you really understand the gospel? Can you explain the gospel? Do you know what it is? And as much as, I mean, there's different levels to all of that, but it's an important thing. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Um, and I'm just going to say as kindly, I'm convinced there are many people in our church that are not believers. I'm convinced that there, if there is not evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life, um, if there's not power, if there's not joy, if there's not grace, there's not spirit, and where there's not spirit, there's not salvation. Um, and th- many of the believers that are believers, that, that, that there's not evidence of the work a lot of evidence of the work of the holy spirit and you might need to just believe and you might be looking for that second step or that special thing that when you get the spirit and you need to believe that the spirit is in you that when you believed on christ the water that that, that you were baptized into the spirit 
Um, and then conversion is evidence, as we see here. The outward expression of the inward work was not hanky, waving, aisle walking, no, you know, decision, whatever. It was baptism. Baptism was the, this is what showed, this was putting the ring on the finger. This was showing that what happened on the insides, on the outside, I'm putting the jersey on, I'm joining Team Jesus, I'm in his body, uh, the church. And so, um, so we're saved by grace through faith. Yet Jesus commands baptism as an outward expression of that, as a display of that repentance, a public seal and promise of God to his people. So there is not a second stage of the Holy Spirit. And I want to go do a couple passages for this. In Romans chapter 8, and this is the number, if you tell me, well, you need to get the Holy Spirit after you've been saved. Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 9. This is like the one passage, if you don't look a lot of them up, this is one you want to jot down. It says, but if you are not in the flesh, you, you, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed that the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. If you don't have the spirit of Christ, you're not his. You're not saved if you don't have the Holy Spirit. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So do a little deductive reasoning here. If, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. Reverse that. If you believed on Jesus, what'd you get when you got Jesus? You got the Holy Spirit. Another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. To Christians, what know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's in you. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. On the last day and that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And he who believes in me, and this is the key one here, John 7. He who believes in me. Jesus says, as the scripture says, out of his belly shall flow, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. And then John interprets that for us and he says, but this he spake concerning the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus had not been glorified. When you believe on Jesus and salvation, you get the Holy Spirit. So Christian... Do you really believe that? And I'm not talking on the head level. I'm talking about the heart level. And, 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 and so all this stuff of exorcism and stuff like this, I heard John MacArthur say this, that the same power of the Holy Spirit that works in you to when you are struggling with not responding in a irritated tone of voice to your kids or you're trying to not tell a white lie the same holy spirit that empowers you to do that is the same amount of power in the holy spirit that does exorcisms and all these things uh that you that you might see that would um so you have the holy spirit christian believe it lean on it uh he has taken up residence so the, and then Jude 19, that those that don't have, what about the people that don't have the Holy Spirit? Well, who are they? Are there Christians that don't have the Holy Spirit? Not since this point. Jude 19 says they are the unbelievers. There are a lot of people that don't have the Holy Spirit. They're called unsaved. Um, and so, so we can, there are a lot of errors that can come with this idea of baptism and visible signs of repentance and faith. You can see that, and uh, we've talked about this before here the importance of water baptism. And so, there may be those here today 
that have maybe been around the church for a long time and are not true converts believing on Jesus. And I think this is a principle of revival, that true conversion. But the second principle of true revival that we see here is that it usually begins with sound doctrine, that there's this emphasis on sound doctrine. And so we see in verse, verse 8 and following that Paul enters this synagogue, he speaks boldly, he reasons and persuades with them about the kingdom of God, um, but there's unbelief and they, they get upset and there's this guy that uh, has this whole Tyrannus and tyranny. Uh, who names their kid tyranny? I don't know, but they, obviously his parents did and so um, and so he they so he goes out of the synagogue and he rents this hall of Tyrannus and so this is kind of a, he's probably a philosopher and the way it worked there very hot arid climate they would um, uh, have their lect- their teaching in the morning uh, and then in the afternoon they would have their siesta time where they take the time off and then come back to work in the evenings so obviously that time from probably like eleven till four in the afternoon was. Um, Pretty, pretty hot, right? And so the building's not being used. So when a building's not in use, you can lease it out to somebody else to use it, right? So this is what Paul does. So he goes and rents out this. Uh, so the, the early church rents out this lecture hall to meet for teaching, okay? So there is warrant there of a church deciding, hey, we're going to, you know, not just meet in homes, but we're also going to have a place that we gather and uh, go for teaching and things like this. There's, uh, so anyway, um, so, so, they, so they go there and he is teaching. And he kind of has this uh, uh, dialogue evangelism method that he has where he's dialogue and reasoning with them. And Paul, I tell you what, this is a little bit of an aside. I don't want to park on too long. But Paul's schedule, you know, sometimes whenever you think your schedule is intense and you find out somebody else was like doing like a lot more than you're like, oh, I don't, I, pretty easy. <laughs> so Paul is like a busy dude. I mean, he's lecturing several hours a day, working his leather making thing as uh, a tent making uh, business as well and doing and writing letters. And during this time span is when like the seven churches of, of that we see read about in Revelation. This is this time that those churches would have been established. So there's a lot of correspondence, a lot of other things going on. He has an intense schedule. And so but I want you to know that revival that comes. So God, and it says here at the end of that section Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail. That it was the word of God. This church is the difference between revival and revivalism. That the biblical revival does not get away from the normal means of grace. The normal means that God uses to grow his church. Sometimes we think we have to have some extra and extraordinary But the ordinary, teaching the Bible, living the Bible, sound doctrine, this is what grew the church. This is what brought about this as people live and think. So we just commit to that. So true revival is commitment to sound doctrine. Thirdly, true revival is marked by a genuine spiritual power, not gimmicks. Uh, this is where we see Ephesus is a center for a lot of this black magic and occult activity. God forbids type of such practices like that. And you see that in Deuteronomy 18. This is an important thing. Unless you think this is kind of something that's not, not around, I'm going to tell you, uh, there's tons of kids. There's kids 
uh, we have kids in, in, in our school. Uh, we have kids that, that are like into, you know, whatever, this Ouija board, this cards, this, that. And be careful. Be scared. Parents be involved in what's going on. I mean, just this is, I mean, it's not just cutesy stuff. Um, and I'm not trying to be all weirdo or anything like that. But like, but anyway, so there's like this local band of Ghostbusters that are there, and they want to make a profit on this. By the way, you think, well, this is like these old people, they, these ancient people that were ignorant. They didn't know what to do. Uh, not too long ago, I heard about that there was a landlord at an apartment complex that for $3,500, you could have your apartment exercised of demons. Um, and so there's always people that have this type of thing going on. This is reality TV, uh, things like this, this exorcism type stuff like this. So there's this Ghostbuster squad um, named Skiva and Sons. Uh, these seven sons of Skiva, uh, these guys are going around, and they hear about this um, uh, Paul and his teaching and in the name of Jesus and all these works. Around. So they're like, well, we want to get on this gig. I mean, this is trending right now. So they're getting the handkerchiefs or aprons of Paul. Now, this is a little gross, and this might be some OCD germaphobe coming out in me, but I thought this was kind of interesting about this passage. So Paul works with leather. Uh, tent making, so we, they wear an apron. So you see this either as napkin, hanky, handkerchief, or apron, same, you know, translated here. Uh, and then so he's w- probably working in the morning, and then they rent out this hall for, for the hottest part of the day. Okay, so we have air conditioning in here, and a lot of, and I'm not like a huffer puffer type preacher, but a lot of times, even at the end of you know, when it gets 11 or 12 o'clock or whenever we get out of here, you know, my back is sweaty. I'm kind of sweaty and I'm kind of, you know, my undershirts are kind of wet. And it, just just from doing that. So multiply that. No air conditioning, middle of the day, hot, arid place for, you know, several hours of lecture time, dialoguing with people already working. Um, Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons are, are pretty nasty. You know, I mean, it's like, and, and, and so I would not be lining up saying, oh, can I have that? They'd be like, no, 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 no. But they're kind of wanting to get some of the dew from heaven, you know what I mean? And they're, and they're, and they're going around to get this so they can go and, um, um, uh, do, and, and, and see, see stuff happen. But what happens is they're trying to do this, and a spirit comes out. And, and let me tell you, it's one thing to be knocked hard. It's one thing to be discredited and embarrassed. But when a demon embarrasses you, that's pretty bad. So these guys are doing this in the name of Jesus. This is just funny right here. The, the, the demon, the, the, the spirit comes out and says, all right, we know about Jesus and we've heard of Paul, but who are you? I mean, it's kind of like, you know, like, it's like, hey, you're not, your name's not on the list. You can't, you, you're, you're not here, you know, like, you know, uh, no soup for you, you know, type thing. And, and so, and, and then, I mean, this is, this is really funny here, what this happens. But it does show us that spiritual warfare is real. But here's the thing, and also that the power was in Jesus' work, and, and he can credit and give credibility to his messengers like Paul, even to handkerchiefs. And this had happened with Jesus, um, with the lady with the, um, uh, the hemorrhaging that wanted to touch the, hem- the issue of blood, that she touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Um, this, 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 this had happened. But it's not magical because verse 11, it says that God did this through Paul. Similar things that had done this. So this is not some like, you know, uh, incantation, people are in you if you say this spell, you know, biggity-bobbity-boo or whatever. This is nothing like this. 
And the failure of Sceva's son showed that this magic is, was, it wasn't just magic, it was God's work. And God can use objects to reveal his power and confirm his messengers. But there are no magic formulas. There's no, if you just say in Jesus' name a million times, or if you plead the blood, plead the blood, plead the blood, and you say it like it's a little magic potion. No, the power is in Jesus. And that's not any discredit to the blood. There's power in the blood. It doesn't mean you can just recite a little gimmicky thing. It also, that Jesus doesn't, get this, Jesus doesn't work for magic shows. Okay? Spiritual power doesn't reside in some magic bullet or spells that you throw Jesus' name in on it. There's no holy hanky. Or let's make this a little, there's no relics. Well, this fell from this person to this, so if we have this in our church, then we're really good, and we got this. And, you know, I, now, it's neat, it's cool, you know, to, oh, okay, here was like, you know, uh, wine or grape juice from uh, Caesarea or from the, uh, you know, from Israel, but doesn't make like any holier than when you have communion with, you know, grape juice we bought from Kroger, you know? It doesn't make it any different, you know? Or, you know, this pulpit might have been made out of some oak from someplace else, but it doesn't, oh, well, we got a splinter in our pulpit that's from the cross that came from this, and it came, you know, you know, I mean, it would be kind of cool to have one of Spurgeon's pulpits, but, you know, but like, I mean, but there's no relics in this. Um, so we, but we see this tendency in superficial Christianity of, oh, if I say this enough or if I get this people to pray or I get this many people or if I share this post on Facebook ten times or if I do that, you know, something will happen. We do this. When someone gets sick and, oh, if I get everybody to do this, if we walk around the hospital eight times or, you know, um, God, he works his power only through uh, the means he chooses and when he chooses. Revival is marked by genuine spiritual power, not human gimmicks. Next point, principle of true revival. True revival is marked by life-changing repentance. And so we see these folks as he is teaching. Many of them, verse 18, became believers, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted them, the value of them, and found it to become 50,000 pieces of silver. Or one of those would be like a day's wage. And so this was, this was a, a thing that they, they, sacri- they got rid of these things. They burned their stuff that was a part of this occult practice. I mean, they got all this in a bonfire. And, and you know, and some, if we'd been doing that today, someone would be like, well, isn't that very, that's not very good stewardship there. You, could, you should sell that, and it's worth this, and hang on to it just in case. And no, 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 they were like, this is radical amputation. I mean, when something's in your way from following Jesus, you get rid of it. And, and, and God has a different economic system than human reasoning does. And God's economy, one sheep is worth more than 99. Jesus leaves 99 to go get one because he cares, because every one of us is the one, right? And, and so God shows us this, that, that you know, if, you're, if your right eye offend you, pluck it out. If your hand offend you, cut it off. What? Well, that's kind of, that's not good stewardship of your eyes. If it keeps you from going to hell, if it keeps you from sinning against God, do it. And so, if, so I ask you, what would you need to throw in the fire when you came to Christ? When you, what, what's in your life now that needs to be thrown in a fire? Um, and sometimes we'll mock and laugh at, you know, someone goes to youth camp and 
comes back convic- convicted of God for all the filth they've been reading in novels or uh, been looking at on their iPad uh, on the Wi-Fi in their parents' basement or, what, or whatever, and so they bring it and they chuck it in the trash can or they take the computer and they smash it in the parking lot. And we're like, well, that's just some cheesy evangelical movie stuff, right? No, that's, pe- that's what happens when people come to know Christ and they repent and they get rid of the stuff in their lives. And so, yeah, people might go a little extreme with that, but man... Don't knock God working in someone's heart and them wanting to get things that keep them away from God out of their lives. And so another principle there, we come to verse 18. When they burned it in the fire, um, the dark arcs, the magic, be warned about this stuff. And so there might be some things that need to be thrown in the fire in our lives. But what happens here, we see in verse 20 to the, to the end of the chapter, is that the tourism industry of the town gets upset. They get upset because, hey, there's money that we're losing here because the economy of the culture of the city depends on this. There's some pictures I put up there of Artemis and and that they uh, they made these little shrines and things about her um, and huge. I mean, the Temple of Artemis there in Ephesus, I mean, this this was much bigger than the Parthenon in Athens. I mean, this dwarf, this was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I mean, huge. Um, I mean, everything worked around this. And actually, this, this, uh, this uh, theater that they go to this, uh, uh, on this road, this is actually, if, if you go visit um, uh, Ephesus today, this, it's still there. The ruins there. It's been preserved. It's one of the best tourist spots there. You can go across the, uh, through the way to get there, and you can see this. So this auditorium, this, this, this theater probably seated about 25,000 people. Uh, which is incredible. So I think that's about the same as like the Coliseum in uh, Morgantown. So you can imagine this: that, that they get upset, they are there, the, um, and um, uh, they're they're shouting about this. Now some of these people didn't even really know. The text even says that they they were like they didn't even know what they were doing, but they're like, "No, great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians!" You know. And I, I mentioned this is a crowd as big as what would be in the the Coliseum at. Um, uh, in Morgantown. So I don't know if half the crowd went, let's go. And the other crowd went Artemis or whatever. I don't know if that was it, but like, um, but, but they're, they're chanting this and they're just caught up into this. Um, the gospel changes our idols. The gospel challenges our idols. Um, the, the, uh, the, this, the temple to Artemis was known as the treasure house of Asia. One of the, I mentioned it had a huge canopy over it. And this spoke about their idols because this wasn't just those that made the idols and worshipped the and, and were the, the priests and priestesses of the idol that had their income, but it was also like lots of stuff had spread out because this was like this is like the tourist industry. This is like saying, you know, we're in Orlando and you're going to talk about shutting down Disney. I mean, this is like every, every everybody. I mean, this is most of the town works there. I mean, this is I mean, so I mean, you put it in our day. This is like you know, there was the people that had the bumper sticker industry. To, you know. Artemis is my co-pilot, and they sold those. There's people over here that made vegetable cartoons about Artemis. Um, the people over here that had t- the T-shirt business with all the different logos about Artemis and uh, all, all the things. They were really into this. I mean, this whole everything was built, and they, people were attracted to the region because of this. So it's affecting the economics. And when you start poking money, that's when people get really mad. And this was comes here so. This is, I mentioned some of this, the idols. And you say, well, man, these are just these ancient people that are just ignorant, right? No. Idols, as I mentioned, are not usually the bad things. I heard this from J.D. Greer. that They're not usually bad things. They're usually good things that we've turned into a God thing. 
that idols are not always bad things. They're usually good things that we turn into a God things. And, and their idols, um, as we've seen, I mean, they're the, they, they weren't, it wasn't about the idol. It was about what the idol represented, that this was the, this was the goddess of wealth. This is the goddess of the god of war. This is the god of thunder. This is the god of fertility. It was all things that they wanted, which is exactly what we worship and the idols we worship. We just didn't put a name on it. We just, we don't call it materialism. We just say it's new truck, right? I mean, and, and, and so we, we do the same type of stuff. And, 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 and coming to Jesus is turning from idols to God or turning to God from idols. I get that in the right order. To God, and we mentioned that last week. We get God in this. We turn to God from idols. And so a few things about these idols. These idols are things that promise satisfaction and joy that don't live up to it. And so these idols, this is what brings, and when it gets challenged, they're getting upset. So I ask you, what types of things in your life do you think you have to have to be happy and satisfied? Like, what is it that you think? That even if you have God, and there are people that are saying, oh, I'm a Christian, I believe in God, but even if you don't have this other thing, you're upset. It, 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 you, don't, you don't think, and for some people that's success, for some people that's romance or a marriage or whatever it might be. For some people that might be an ideal family or good grades or comfort and leisure or financial stability or whatever it is. If you're like, if I don't have that, I'm just not going to be happy, even if I have God. And if that's the case, it may be an idol in your life. Um, could you be happy if you didn't have those things? Could you be happy if you didn't get married or remarried? Could you be happy if you didn't have grandkids? Could you be happy if you were had a busy and hectic schedule and you didn't have downtime? Could you be happy if you didn't have a chance to go here or go there? Would you be happy if you had Jesus and didn't have those things? And if your answer is no, your true answer between you and God is no, then I, w- I would just encourage you to lean in on that and, and get rid of that idol. You might do some burning in your heart uh, of those idols. So what you think will bring happiness and security apart from God is often the thing that you are, are leaning in as, a, on a, as an idol. And idols, when they are poked, they reveal our deepest emotions. I mean, they're, they're, they're saying that she's the protector of the city. But the irony is they're trying to protect her, and we protect our idols. I know this is, if I, and, I'm, and I'm doing a little confession here. Um, when I think of the things I get upset about the most, it's usually the things that started nudging an idol in my heart. Um, it's things that normally wouldn't bother me, but if someone pokes on that one, you're like, oh, and, and you're like, you know what? We get mad when someone challenges our idols. That's why some people get really mad. And you know what? I, um, we, we try to protect them. Uh, that's why some people get mad at preachers or, and, 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 and just another thing that God's working on my heart about in recent months is that um, one of my idols is an idol of affirmation and people pleasing. And because of that, so I get mad, even if something's not true, and, 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 and you might be that way too, you know, that, that you, it's hard to take criticism if you, if you know it's not true. You know, if someone says something, you know, like, um, you know, like, um, uh, Alethea, you know, did this. And she knows she didn't do that. But, but she's mad because there's people that might think she's bad and did that. And you're like, wait, I'm mad even though I didn't do it. And, I didn't, and, you're like, and so it's just raring up in you. And you know what happens then? Is then you do the opposite of what 
happened there? That you're trying to protect this idol and you're not even getting happy. You don't even have what you wanted in the idol. You don't even have a good reputation or being the good one or whatever. And so, and the other thing what happens with me then is then I know if you preach on certain things or you say certain things or you confront somebody and you're like, ah, oh, I'll just let that go and time will heal all wounds, right? And, and then, then you don't confront things. And then people are still upset with you and you haven't done your job to point out idols because you have an idol, this is me, um, of not pointing out idols or not or wanting to be liked. And so I say all that to say, man, I need to start calling stuff out. And um, anyway, so... Um, that I'm not doing my job because of an idol in my heart. Um, and so um, idols need to be protected. So the irony here is that they're trying to protect Artemis, who is supposed to be protecting them. And, and then when you fight to protect an idol, you're not even getting to enjoy it. You know, it's kind of like wearing the life preserver. They, wearing, life preservers are not comfortable. Like, I, like, I love water skiing, but wearing a life preserver is not comfortable. You don't just sit around with a life preserver on. You, you put the life preserver on because you want to get in the water, and you're supposed to do that in case someone drives by that has a badge, right? And, and so you, that's why you wear the life preserver. Um, so, so you know what? Someone might say, oh, I have to have a pro- good marriage and I really want to focus on my marriage and that's the idol. And so the, anytime anything pokes that idol, you, so you know what you end up being? You end up being a manipulative, controlling, codependent spouse and you don't have a happy marriage because e- even though your idol was having a good marriage. Or you, your idols, your kids, and you, you, have an, you want to have this ideal family. So, you, so instead of just being a loving mom that's shepherding and growing, then you turn into this controlling woman that just, and, and they're all mad at you and there's tension everywhere. And the irony is you did this because you had an idol of having an ideal family, but now you end up with the, you're not even enjoying your family. Or you, your idol's money and success. And so you get mad at anybody that's not doing something with your money and stuff like that. And you're not even enjoying it because you're so worried that, well, if I go on this trip instead of this, I might lose this. And then, you know, and it's all about the money. Um, that's why some people, and that's why some people would never entertain the idea of sending their kids off to a Christian college or the mission field because they've got this idol of an ideal family and, and my kids serving Jesus in Uganda or in the Eastern Europe and me not seeing my grandkids a lot is not in that ideal family. So you'll spin it. And so you know what? Idols demand sacrifices. So we make sacrifices to idols. And we'll even shift how we view things. Well, you wouldn't want to do this, and you wouldn't do that. So, and really, you're serving an idol. Um, or you might say, well, stewardship, this is when really you're disobeying God. You're not being generous, generous with your money. And I'm going to tell you, church, and I say this in love, there is no reason economically, attendance-wise, as far as attendance-wise goes, income-wise, demographics-wise, why this church, why our church, should be behind in budget the way we are in previous previous months. Uh, There's no reason. We've got the attendance, we've got the economic care, we've got the demographics. The difference is we have idols besides being generous to God's work um, and what God's doing. And so do you really want to see God work? And this is where it's at. And I don't want to put undue guilt on someone that shouldn't be there, but I also want to lay into what's there. Um, so, um, idols demand sacrifices. And, and I mean, sometimes even child sacrifices. Say, well, we wouldn't do that today, would we? Well, yeah, we do. There are people that sacrifice their children to idols all the time. I got to have my career. And if I have a kid, I can't have my career. If we're too young, we're not both done with school yet. We're, he's supposed to be through law school and I'm supposed to be through this school before we have kids. And we're not going to do that. So we're going to go to the clinic. 
And we'll make child sacrifices just like they did. And I'll say, well, I wouldn't do abortion. No, but you know what you will do is you won't be around because you're serving this God of success or whatever. And you're sac- or, or you've got this huge ego and you want to see your former days of football glory um, relived in your kid. So you'll sacrifice him so that you, for your ego, for your idol. And we make sacrifices of our children to our idols all the time. And so what's the idol in your life? There might be some people sacrifice biblical integrity. I've met so many people that they have this idol of romance and they, they're kind of like serial daters and they can't imagine not being in a relationship at some point. And so they might be there and then they start dating an unsaved guy or an unsaved girl. And you go up to, and they don't mean it. I mean, you go up to, why are you dating that unsaved guy? Why are you dating that unsaved girl? Well, I don't, I don't know, it's not right, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't you just say you have an idol of romance, you're insecure about yourself, you think this is going to make you happy more than Jesus does, and so you're willing to sacrifice what you know the Bible says. Why don't you just say that? Well, I don't want to say it that way, and that's not very loving, right? And, um, or, well, I know what the Bible says about keeping covenant in marriage and divorce and remarriage, but, you know, doesn't God want me to be happy? Doesn't God want me to be happy? Oh, okay. So, so we're going to twist the Bible and make it this way and do that or whatever. Or you don't obey God in your finances. Um, materialism is a false God that needs to be renounced if you're going to follow Jesus. So um, there is this culture of idolatry in Ephesus, and they are mad at what God is doing there. And so there, this happens when God is at work, as I read earlier there. That quote from uh, oh the the Irish guy uh, what do you, uh, I'm 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 uh, oh I'm sorry I mix I missed my quote oh if a revival's from heaven it'll raise hell uh, that it'll that it does that so um, there is an, a culture a culture of idolatry so embedded in a society that it drives the economy and we've seen that we've seen that in this own in our country when there's an idolatry so embedded into the society that it, it drives the economy. And when someone tries to poke it, they will make every rational way to explain it. And I know things are a lot more complicated than I think of, but some things are simple too, right? And, um, um, and so I would say, what are, think, think this afternoon, what are some five sins of Clarksburg that if revival re- did break out and there was awakening going on in our town that people would get furious about? Would it be about like how certain codes should be followed or not and there shouldn't be this type of corruption in politics or would it be certain things with drugs or those that are selling this or working this or are underhanded doing this that people would get furious about? And so you know what, church? There's sometimes you ought to be glad when people are mad because it means you're doing your job and God's working. I mean, if it's for the right reasons, that is. Um, and so anyway, true, we've seen in this passage uh, some principles of what, true revival looks like in a church uh, here in a city here in Ephesus, that it, a true revival emphasizes genuine conversion. So I ask, are you, can, do you have the Holy Spirit? As Paul asked them, do you have the Holy Spirit? You receive the Holy Spirit when you believe on Christ. And there may be some that have been playing the game and you really haven't believed on Christ. True revival, secondly, emphasizes sound doctrine, the normal means of grace. Do you have a hunger for that? For, for sound Bible teaching. 
and just to lean into that. Right, this is what true revival is. The irony is sometimes people want to talk about a, a, a revival service, and, and, but, it, but it involves little to no biblical preaching. That's not biblical revival. That's a circus. Um, anybody could get a crowd. Crowds are easy to get. You just give out free stuff. True revival was thirdly marked by genuine spiritual power, not gimmicks and tricks. Um, and true revival confronts idols. Um, and the Bible says in Jeremiah 2, verse 13, it says that my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've hewn themselves out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And this is really what we do, and this is the, the, all of humanity, that we forsake God, the, the one true one that does bring satisfaction, purpose, joy, redemption, reconciliation to himself. And we find idols, things that are often good things, that we make God things, that, that we think that's what's going to bring us satisfaction, that's what we're going to lean into, that's what I need. And then they're broken and they're empty, and we're left miserable. I mean, some of the most miserable people you will ever know are the people in a marriage with lots of money, with all the things that everybody else is thinking. Because it's not going to be there. And so, those idols demand sacrifice. And here's a cool thing. False idols, false gods, Artemises, they demand, they demand sacrifices. Materialism demands sacrifices. Covetousness and the God of romance demand sacrifices. Lying, cheating to protect image, to gain power, to I mean, status, promotion, it demands sacrifices. It, 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 sacrificing, uh, forsaking a good friend to backstab them so you get ahead and he doesn't, or whatever it might be. But when it comes to Christ, it demands sacrifice as well. But the difference is that Jesus made the sacrifice for us. And so we depend on his sacrifice. And we gain all of Jesus in that. And we gain his spirit in that. That Jesus is better than all idols. And so, as the old hymn says, Hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longing. He's the one that satisfies. So, Know this, and folks, know that you have the Holy Spirit in salvation, so feel that and live based upon that and, and, and be committed to Jesus and not idols because living for Jesus means renouncing idols no matter what form they take. And know and feel and live this way this week that we would have true revival in our own hearts and in our church and, Lord willing, in our neighborhood. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage. And Lord, there's just so much here. And Lord, I, I feel like I haven't even touched it. And But Lord, we know that you won't let your word return void. And so Lord, I pray that you would do the application as the way your spirit would want his word to be applied. Lord, I pray that you would work in hearts right now. Uh, we all have some idols that need to be killed, that need to be as it were to say, like here in the passage, taken to the fire and burned. Maybe some even literally. 
but all of us probably have some things in our hearts and affections that need to be sacrificed, to be renounced, to believe and lean on Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would not be um, surprised when our culture um, tries to defend or we find in our own hearts our flesh rearing up to defend our idols. Lord, I pray that you would um, free us of that, help us to focus on the sacrifice you made in your son. And I pray that there may be some that don't know you that need to believe. Lord, I pray that you draw some to yourself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.